And uh, welcome. If you're here uh, and you're a member, you're visiting for the first time, I want to welcome you to Resurrection. My name is Brian White. I oversee the spiritual formation at the church here. And, uh, I, you know, i got to tell you before I even get started, Haley and I always talk about how nice it is when people make mistakes here, and it kind of shows the humanity of what happens in worship. So I want to thank everybody who's made a mistake this morning. You really helped me relax. So. Thank you. I was feeling good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was getting ready this morning for um, our sermon, and my 11-year-old Ellery said in passing, she said, you know, Brian, if you keep your sermon at about 20 minutes, I'll probably understand you better. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so when I get done with this 60-minute sermon, you can register your complaints with my daughter, actually. Uh, as Rob mentioned, we're starting uh, Ruth chapter 1, and I'm going to... I'm going to let you guys go ahead and stay seated since you stood through the law and everything else, and I'm going to read it for you, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll do the sermon. Um, This is God's sweet word to you and I. This is Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons, Mechlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Mechlon and Kilion died so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went out on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, 
She said no more. So the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's the word of the God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us, and thank you for this beautiful word that you've given us. And uh, Father, so often your word and the way that you work in the lives of your people is both encouragement but can be incredibly challenging for us and push us into areas of our faith and understanding of you that can feel um, unsure and shaking as we start this incredible story of Ruth and follow her on her journey of faith we ask that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear the words that you have for us that our faith would be strengthened as we see how you work in the lives of your people and through the words of scripture and that we would come away with a deeper understanding of who you are and just how perfect your love for us is and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Amen. Well, as Rob mentioned, we're starting, uh, we're starting a short series in the book of Ruth while he gets a very well-deserved break uh, from preaching in the month of August. And uh, I have the pleasure of introducing the book to you, but I also have the very hard job of leaving you with a cliffhanger. If you're familiar with this book, we're going to cover some very challenging events in the lives of uh, God's people, and then we're going to have to leave it off until next week. Rob was saying before the sermon, it's kind of like a serial western, so we're going to wind it up and leave you with a cliffhanger for the week. But uh, If you haven't read this book, I encourage you to use it as a, as a devotion. It is a blockbuster story. It's the thing that great movies are made out of. Uh, it intertwines these two storylines and involve the very real events of uh, people's lives and the way that God works in them, and it actually connects those events in this those events in this beautiful way to the entire redemptive drama of all of Scripture. And so, in a neat way, in the next four weeks, what we're going to see is the intersection between God's decisions, His control over all things, and how that intersects with the really with the real decisions that you and I make in everyday life, and how we can understand those things, and not only how we can understand means of strengthening our faith, but how they have significance in God's whole story. And that's really kind of hard to believe. When you read the story, you'll see things happening at ground zero, and then we'll see God's perspective on those things and how they connect with what happens in Genesis all the way to what happens in Revelation. And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to talk about uh, what happens in one family in the land of Moab and at the end of this story, in four weeks, we're going to end with a genealogy that points us all the way towards Jesus. Uh, one of the biggest challenges that I found, whether it's in discipling people or, or in counseling when people are experiencing difficulty in life, is when people have a genuine faith in God, when they take Scripture at face value and they believe what it says, and then they experience difficulties in life, they're typically faced with some form of the same question. 
And that's that. If the God that makes these promises to me in Scripture is who he says he is, and that same God has dealt me this difficult hand in life, how can I still know that that God is good? And how can I trust him? Um, and in a very real way, this chapter forces us to ask that question, not only about the characters we're going to consider, but also it reminds us that's a question that we all have either faced, uh, we, you may be facing it right now in your own life, or that we're going to face at some point in our walk with the Lord. And so the main idea that I want us to consider together in the next few minutes is that God answers that in the affirmative, uh, that God does show us that he can give us a faith where we can trust him. Uh, we can trust his providence. We can trust him in how he provides for us. And especially we can trust the promises that he makes to us in scripture. So uh, trusting God in his providence, even when it's difficult, uh, learning to trust God and how he provides for us, and especially finding joy and trusting in God's promises. Uh, so first, uh, just a little setting. You know, this is... Um, this book is really, I think, a literary masterpiece of writing. Whoever the author is uh, was an amazing writer because they do a couple of different things. There's a lot of word plays in this. There's names that have great significance. There's phrases that the people use uh, when they speak that are ironic in nature that um, point towards what God's doing in the story. And uh, he also narrates this huge sweeping section of people's lives with... Um, in a pointed way that doesn't negate how serious uh, the events are, but also moves us right along to where God wants us to be with the characters. And if you noticed in the first five verses, it starts out with a story of a Jewish family uh, who moves out of God's country into a foreign land, the land of Moab. And as a result, they take up foreign wives and they start a new life. So a couple of things, this is, uh, something that happens in the time of Judges. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it makes this brief statement, this happened in the time of Judges. If you don't know the Old Testament scriptures, you're like, okay, great, who are the judges? Civil, legal, magistrate, what does that mean to me? Uh, but that's a sweeping statement that talks about this entire section of the history of Israel uh, that was really a dark age in their history as God's covenant people. And so when you see the statement in scripture, this happened during the time of Judges, it's saying this is a very hard time for God's people. They didn't have a king. They were caught in this cycle where the people would um, be giving God's blessing, reminded of his faithfulness. They would turn away from God. They would stumble into sin, experience the consequences, cry out to God. He would allow them to repent and bring them back into restoration. And that cycle happened over and over and over again. Um, it's kind of like if in 20 years when you and I are talking to people, we'll be like, it happened during the pandemic. And people will be like, whoa, that was rough. Right? This is the Old Testament version of like the pandemic here. Uh, furthermore, <laughs> too real? Maybe that was too soon. Uh, furthermore, it happened during, there's a mention of a famine. And in Old Testament Israel, the people viewed God as being in control of everything. That's one of the biggest themes that we're going to see in this chapter, that the people that are experiencing these difficulties take God's sovereignty or his control over everything very, very seriously. And so when you hear the statement, there's a famine in the land, they would understand that that was God chastening his people. And so they knew that it was the result of something that God allowed. Um, also that they lived a covenantal life. So they had this understanding in how they were supposed to live in a relationship with God. One of the primary things was that they wouldn't take foreign wives and that they wouldn't move out of the land in which God told them that he would be with them. And so in five verses, what do we see? 
There's this family who's suffering very real difficulties under very real pressure, making very hard decisions, and they move out away from where God called them to live, and they did things that God told them and warned them they shouldn't do. Now, it'd be easy to judge them, right? But it's also a very good reminder for you and I that decisions that lead us away from God can start with things that are as innocent and serious as an empty stomach and a need to feed your children, right? Oftentimes, the thing that leads us away from God start with very innocent, genuine intentions. And we see that with Elimelech and his family. Uh, on another level, we see uh, uh, the reality that God, even in the way uh, that he works through the lives of his people, we see the reality that God was uh, working through these decisions that they made and orchestrating his will, even in the midst of how they stumbled. So, and you see that, uh, there's a lot of irony, and even in the titles of the names, Elimelech, when I looked it up, actually means my God is king. And so it paints this picture for us that there's this man leading his family away from the God who was his king into a land where God warned him not to go. And at the end of that opening section, that summary, it spans 10 years of decision-making that ultimately leads to a series of tragedies. Uh, Elimelech dies, leaving... Naomi is a widow. Uh, his two sons take wives and then they die and we don't know what the reasons are for that. And that leaves these three women in a land exposed in a patriarchal world, in a very male-dominated world with no husbands and no one to carry on their family name with no children. You know, when I was writing the sermon, the first section was the hardest for me to write because there's this part of me that always feels compelled to make a defense of God. Uh, and what we're looking at is a very hard example of God's providential control over people's lives. And there's this part of me that always wants to defend God when I'm preaching or teaching or sharing scripture. But the reality is, is if you've read the Bible, God never apologizes for that. He makes no apologies. There's no apology in the story for what he's doing. And as we see, uh, just the opposite. He's going to work it out in a way that is amazing, for, not only for the people involved, for you and I. And sometimes scholars will approach this text with a very simplistic view, and they'll say, look, there's really not much of a mystery here. These people were God's covenant people. He gave them a set of rules to live by in faith. They disobeyed those rules. They experienced the consequences. Why should I feel sorry for them? Right? Next. But that's very simplistic, and that's a very immature view of what's going on. Uh, when we look at Naomi in particular, what we see is a human being's experience that highlights the very real um, impact of suffering in a person's life. This woman was a wife and a mother, and she lost both her husband and her son. And surely part of that was influenced by her and her husband's decision-making, but a larger part really was... Uh, the awareness that God allowed those things to happen to her. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines God's providence as his uh, works that are most holy, wise, powerful, and they involve the preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. And Naomi is a very real picture of a person who is struggling with a conscious knowledge of that. She knew that God was involved and in control of everything that she was experiencing. And a constant theme in this chapter is her open struggle with God uh, and the fact that God had allowed that to happen to her. I think sometimes Naomi 
I relate to Naomi a lot, especially when she talks about how she felt bitter in her suffering. That's something that I've struggled with too at different periods of my faith. And I think sometimes she kind of gets a bad rap and people think that Naomi doesn't really have faith. But this woman shows an extraordinary level of faith in God. Uh, and that unfolds in this chapter in that she is very open, very honest. She's very real with how hurt she is by what God allowed to happen and very real in vocalizing her confusion and how God was working in the midst of all that suffering in her life. And so in a, in a real way, Naomi's theology is super correct. It's very reformed. <laughs> Naomi is openly acknowledging, even in what she calls God, towards the end of the chapter, she calls God by the title Shaddai, which sometimes is translated the Almighty, or the one who has all power. She's openly saying, look, God has all the power. He's the one that brought all this about in my life, so... What do you want me to do about it? But she's in the struggle because she has a very real faith. Uh, and she's living in a foreign land with two stepdaughters who may or may not have known the God of her faith and the God of her homeland. And this meant that they were stranded in a foreign territory, not knowing what was going to happen. But she knew what God had done and what he had allowed to happen in her life. Naomi's a woman who takes God's sovereignty so seriously that she openly processes her struggle before the whole world. If you think about that, how many of us have that kind of courage? Oftentimes we show up on a Sunday morning and we clean it up. We could be at home, bitter as all get out for what we see God doing or being confused by what we don't understand is happening in our life and show up on Sunday morning and be like, hey, how you doing, Brian? Super good. Praise Jesus. I'm so happy to be here. Right? But in our heart, we are imploding. In verse 6, it makes this vague statement that God had ended the famine and Naomi saw that he had visited his people and so she decided to go back. And when we think about that, it hardly seems like an act of faith on her part. Uh, but in acknowledging that God had visited his people and ended that famine, she was deciding that she would go back to where she knew the Lord was. In starting the long, difficult road home to find food, Naomi really was starting the journey that God was drawing her into, one that involved her own restoration and the strengthening of her faith, and not only her, but of Ruth, as we're going to see in a moment. You know, if, if we think about this, or just think about the idea of God's providence and the reality of our lives, I think any, every one of us can admit that God's providence is super, super hard to deal with sometimes. Amen? I mean, when it involves me experiencing good things, I am all about it. I love God's providence. God got me the new job. Praise his providence. I got the girl of my dreams. Praise his providence. <laughs> this beautiful baby. Thank God for your providence. You know? The loss of a loved one. Suddenly his providence is very difficult and confusing. Having earnest prayers that are never fulfilled as far as we can tell. It's a very difficult aspect of God's providence that we all face. And the reason why is because it involves you and I acting in faith despite the appearance of things, or maybe because of the appearance of things, um, acting in faith that we still believe that God is good and that his will is still actually good for us. Especially when it involves our imperfect decisions. That's one of the things that I appreciate the most about the story of Ruth. It involves their imperfections and their imperfect decision-making. And it shows it in a redemptive light, even as we see the consequences of some of those decisions. 
you know, and sometimes when we're experiencing those painful consequences in our own life, there's a temptation for us to believe that really our entire walk of faith is about cause and effect. And so we begin to think that God is more like a magic eight ball. Maybe I'm dating myself, but there's a thing that used to be a magic eight ball and you would shake it. And it had about seven or eight very vague, ambivalent answers. You'd be like, Lord, should I do this? Maybe. You're like, Lord, should I marry that person? Sounds good. You know, just this very simplistic way of thinking about it. And there's a temptation for us, especially when we're experiencing pain or difficulty to correlate it as if it's solely based on our decision-making and what God may or may not be doing and saying to us. But the reality is that God calls us to trust him and follow him, right? I mean, that's the essence of the Christian faith. It's following God uh, where he leads us. And that includes through our difficulties. And that is primarily because he promises to work out his good will in and through us whether that's through the blessings we experience or the difficulties that we experience. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Paul makes incredible statements in the New Testament, especially the one in Romans 8.28 when he says, we know, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And if you know anything about Paul's life, this is a man that started in the secular world from the top as a Pharisee among Pharisees, and then proceeded to go on this journey with God that involved everything from floggings, rejection, persecution, shipwreck, snakebite, jail, imprisonment. And if you read it from a secular standpoint, it ends in utter failure. He literally writes his last letter that we know from prison. The same man said that, we know. He knew that everything that happened was for God's good because he was called according to God's purpose. And so it forces you and I to face that question that I had mentioned earlier. In the midst of our difficulties and seeing God's providence, having a, a knowledge of my imperfect decisions when I make mistakes and go my own way, is God still good? And can I still trust him? Is he still safe? Um, in Naomi and Ruth, we find a huge encouragement, I think, uh, it's a huge encouragement to me to meet and read about people like Naomi and Ruth in Scripture. Because what we see here is a very real faith uh, being lived out in the complexities of a fallen world. Uh, imp imperfect people living out in imperfect faith. And it's gritty. What we see in them is a real faith that's gritty and grappling with the very real nature of sin and brokenness and how God works through those things. Uh, we're reading in summary about women who had real lives and real husbands who they lost, who had real hearts that were broken and wounded and were living out a very real and flawed and courageous faith in the midst of that and trying to make sense of what God was doing. And you know, it's true, the more that you walk with God, you know it, even though we don't like to think about it, especially when it applies to us, that God sometimes allows tragedy to set the stage for larger work, both in our lives and the lives of other people. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he neglects our suffering. He neglects our suffering in the midst of that either. Uh, oftentimes, what God is most gracious in doing is even in the midst of our suffering is he teaches to look for and to rely on the ways in which he cares for us, even in the midst of great loss and tragedy. 
Uh, I had uh, I had this great experience with Heidi where she shared a story with Herb and I during our membership interview with her. It was one of my favorite stories in our membership interviews. But as she was sharing about her journey of faith uh, with the Lord, she shared a story about how when she was younger, um, she lost her father at a younger age when she was in high school. And she was just organically talking about us, about the challenges of her faith and that season in life and, and how they lost their father. Uh, he had become ill and he died. And just organically, as she told the story, she couched it in this experience of this season in life that was just embedded in her mind and her heart. And she naturally started saying, yeah, during that time, my dad's schedule was set up in a way where he could get us from school and I remember that he would get us from school and we would all just hang out together in the afternoons for three or four hours. And then she said, yeah, and he got sick and he died. And it was super, it was super tragic. And all at once, like in the summary statement, she talked about one of the most difficult things that a teenager could go through, the loss of a parent. And she naturally couched it in this beautiful example how God was providing for her in the midst of that difficulty. It's one of my favorite stories that we've had in our membership interviews. And we see that in Naomi, too. God is working out things in a way that he is caring for her through other people and through his will. And that leads us to the second point, that we also, if we, if we look for how God's doing that, we can learn to trust God and how he provides for us and his provisions. And God always faithfully gives us provision in the midst of hard providence. Uh, in this first chapter, there's two radical perspectives that are uh, presented here. Uh, one we find in Naomi and one in Ruth. And uh, Naomi, in a, in a very real way, is a mixed bag of faith. And that's one of the things that I love about her is sometimes she feels like she's got a real solid grasp on what God's doing. And other times she's like, save yourself. I'm bitter. God's made me bitter. I'm a train wreck. Get out, you know, run while you can. <laughs> And I love the melodrama in that, by the way. <laughs> uh, she's a mixed bag. Like we said in verse 6, she, she made this decision based on faith and what she knew about God, that she would have returned to where she knew God was going to be uh, and where he was with his people in Bethlehem. But here in verse 8 through 13, she talks about um, her daughter-in-law's welfare. And she says uh, that she doesn't want them to come with her. She encourages them to go back to the houses of their family and to remain and Moab as she leaves. And she talks about something that's going to be a huge part of the entire book of Ruth. She talks about this concept that's sometimes referred to as a kinsman redeemer. And basically what that is, is this tradition that the nation of Israel was called to practice. And that if a wife lost her spouse, if her husband died, that the brother or the nearest male relative would marry her in order to give her an heir and carry on the family name. And so in verses 8 through 13, that's what she's talking about when she tells her daughter-in-law. She's not just being melodramatic, although I love that. It seems like she is in a way. She's telling them, look, there is nothing if you come. There's no good thing that will come if you follow me. You should go back to your families in the hopes that you will find a husband because there is no one from my family line that will be able to give you an heir. And her concern was valid. Her grief was caused really by what she had been through. But the trouble for her is that she was only focused on what God had taken away from her. And she wasn't really looking for what God was doing. And so that's a very universal thing. In, in almost all the counseling that I've done, 
And when I, and also in my own life, when I am experiencing a counseling case where somebody struggled with grief for a prolonged period of time, one of the universal aspects of it is that grief paralyzes the individual and then we turn inwards. Same thing happens when we struggle with depression. Eventually we turn inwards and we become paralyzed and that's all we can focus on. And I think in a way that's what Naomi was experiencing here. She could only see what God had removed from her life. And she even says that towards the end of the chapter in verse 21. She makes a statement when she comes into her hometown and people are like, is that Naomi? And she makes this statement. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And that's ironic because God literally, um, in speaking about the wordplay that's prevalent in this chapter all over the place, God is literally bringing her back to the place where he just ended the famine at the beginning of the harvest where food was abundant. And Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. So he's bringing this woman in the place where he promised he would be at the end of a famine where food would be found in a place called the house of bread. And what does she say? I'm here and I'm empty. (laughs) Ironically, in the larger picture, what you're going to see as we move through the next couple chapters as well is that this is the only place where Ruth and Naomi were going to find redemption. And not only that, the larger drama of scripture is where you and I both find redemption as well. Most importantly in all this, though, at ground zero, one of the things that Naomi missed is she missed the incredible blessing that God had given her in Ruth. Um, and Ruth's devotion to her was, is very sweet. It's an incredible act of devotion, not only to her, but to her God. And that would not only become the means for their blessing, but the blessing of all God's people. Um, and I think this is one of those great reminders where when we look in Scripture, it's an encouragement to you and I that it's God's very nature that he always works in the most unlikely of ways through the most unlikely of people. And that's why whenever I hear uh, God describing his people and how they come from all walks of life, uh, from every aspect of life, that he works through them and redeems them collectively. Because that includes you and I. It includes people like Naomi that are brokenhearted but honest about their faith. And Ruth, who makes this incredible devotion to God, with no real prospect for hope in it. You know, I think you and I, um, whether or not we've experienced depression or whether or not you've experienced any great loss in your life, this may be something that you hear about that you can consider in the abstract but haven't really gone through yet. The reality is is you've either gone through it, you're experiencing it now, or the reality is is living in a fallen world, you will go through it. And we all are going to fall into the temptation of turning inwards in our grief and becoming bitter. And the tragedy in that is that um, when God allows those things to happen and he's leading us through them, we get stuck in this spot where we stop focusing on God and all we can focus on suddenly is our own heartbreak and our own difficulties. And we become paralyzed by that. But God in his providence is always embedding. I've heard music, planes, bells, birds, <laughs> sirens. It'd be great if there was like a foghorn in the back before it wrapped up. But God in his providence, he's always providing for us in the midst of everything. Um, an obvious example, one of the things I was thinking about is for those that know uh, Janie and I know that we just had our third child, Jack, this year. 
And uh, coming into this year of life, Jenny and I had all these very um, wholehearted visions of what it was going to be like. We had just finished seminary for all of us that were in that. It was a very long, hard road. Uh, we pictured all the celebrations that would happen with that. We were eagerly looking forward to Jack's arrival and his birth. And uh, right at the beginning of this year, my mother also died after a very long, difficult, prolonged battle with dementia and heart disease and all these other health problems. And, and it had been our heart and our prayer for several years that she would live long enough to celebrate those things with us. And she got to meet Jack right after that she died. And uh, just an incredible heartbreak. My mother, for me, is literally the most important person in my life. Uh, and so it's just this devastating loss for all of us. And at times it was paralyzing. There's days and weeks, especially early on, where it was just paralyzing. And it was all I could think about. And God gave us this wonderful, sweet blessing in Jack. And if you know our son, I mean, this dude, he like glows in the dark with happiness. This boy is always happy, always joyful. Even when he's throwing a fit, it's like, begins with happiness, throws a fit, ends with happiness. And you're like, okay. And he's been the sweet provision for God in the way that he's provided for us. And that's just an obvious example, right? God does that for all of us in different ways. There's many people in this church, in my church family, that were with me and walking alongside me through that grieving process that helped me keep my eyes on God and not become paralyzed and bitter about what God was leading me through, right? And that's a gift that God gives to you and I. Uh, and that offers us opportunities to see with spiritual eyes. We see that all over scripture, that God challenges us and encourages us to have hearts and desires and perspectives that are eternal in nature, that look at things the way that he looks at things and to focus is on what he's doing in our lives, even in the midst of loss and tragedy. And as a result, we grow in our capacity to trust him and grow in our capacity to walk with him through those valleys in life. Uh, and that leads to the third point, which is the most joyful, that in doing that, even when we practice doing that imperfectly, walking by faith, that God teaches us how we can find joy in, in trusting him and his promises because they all come true. Uh, perhaps the greatest wordplay in this chapter is the word hesed. And it's interesting how it's used here. If you're not familiar with um, the idea or their concept, it's a real frequent term that's characteristically used to describe God, particularly God's characteristic and his demeanor towards his people. And what it means as a general concept is God's faithfulness, his kindness, and his devotion to people that he's made promises to. And so God's hesed, loving kindness and gentleness is always perfectly working out towards his people and in their lives. But here in this chapter, it's used initially uh, by Naomi, a woman who's experiencing great bitterness at the hand of God. And she uses it first in a sweet way about her daughters-in-law. And she says, uh, as she asked them to go their own way, she says, my prayer is that the God who I am struggling with will show kindness or hesed to you in the same way that you've shown it to me. It's a beautiful um, prayer and hope that she has from a woman who's brokenhearted. And it shows the beautiful devotion that her daughters-in-law had shown to her in their life. Um, but that's also something that God works out in those, not only the horizontal relationships that people have, but the relationship he has with us, right? I mean, that's the whole overarching concept of how he promises to work among his people. 
And in verse 8, when Naomi prays, she prays that her daughter-in-laws would experience that hasid, that faithfulness, that kindness to them, as she had experienced it in her relationship with them as well. But without realizing it, Naomi is standing in the presence of an even greater example in Ruth. Now, if you're familiar with this story in particular, you know the most famous verses in this book are 16 and 17. Um, and I always tease my wife because we went to a wedding of one of her friends and these were used in the wedding ceremony and that's very common because these words of devotion are staggering <laughs> that Ruth makes. And uh, Rob made this, uh, actually this joke at a toast not too long ago, <laughs> at a wedding toast, where he talked about um, the beauty of wedding vows and how they're so dramatic and how we never really keep them. <laughs> And when we see this in 16 and 17, you think of Ruth's words to her mother and you're like, I, that is incredible. She makes this sweeping, beautiful, staggering statement of devotion to this woman. Uh, and not only to this woman, to her God. And she says, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. And then most dramatically, she says, your God will be my God. And so first she shows incredible devotion to her mother-in-law, but even more amazing, she makes this commitment to a God that she doesn't know, to go and be a part of a people that she had not been a part of with no real prospects for what was going to come as a result of that. Ruth is this beautiful picture for every one of us in that she's a foreigner to God's people. She's somebody who lived outside God's covenant promises. But she makes this statement of faith that she wants to follow that God. You know, as beautiful as that picture of devotion and faithfulness is, she's only human. And as genuine as I believe every wedding vow is, those people are only sinners. You can ask my wife, any of the vows that were involved in our wedding ceremony, I've dropped the ball on at least a thousand times. <laughs> But as we see when we read this story in a very indirect but wonderful way, it highlights an even greater faithfulness that God is constantly showing you and I and constantly working out in our lives, even in the most difficult of providences that he lets unfold in our journey with him. And we see that ultimately in Jesus. If you've read the New Testament, the ultimate act of God's providence is shown in the life and the work of Jesus and the ultimate provision for all of creation and you and I personally happens as a result of what Jesus does in his faith and his faithfulness to God. And as a result of that, every single promise of scripture is true for you and I because of what Jesus has done. It's the perfect act of faithfulness. It's perfect hesed. And he turns that into the perfect act of kindness towards you and I as people who are far from him because of our sinfulness. And the beauty in that is that God promises us and he shows us in scripture and stories like this that all those promises, all his faithfulness is turned towards us and turned towards our good. And that we see that he's always steadfast and that he's always truthful. He's always truthful and he's always guiding our lives. Every one of us will face seasons or have faced seasons where we will be experiencing pain and difficulty and we're tempted and sometimes fall for the temptation to think that our faith in God and trusting him is not enough and that we need to go our own way. And in that sense, we're just like Elimelech. 
we all hit that breaking point where we're tempted to go outside of what God's called us to do and make our own decisions, even with the best of intentions. But what we learn here and what we're going to learn, especially in the book of Ruth in these four chapters, is that as you and I go through these seasons of life with God, trusting in his control over things, learning to look to and to rely on the promises that we have in Jesus, that we realize that the faith that God is building in you and I is not only enough, but it's truly all we ever need. When it comes to all, when, when it comes to every one of us, we all can relate to Ruth in that because of our sin, we're separated from God. We're all foreigners in that sense. And we all can relate to God and, and experience this beautiful gift. If you have a saving faith in Jesus, we've all experienced the beautiful gift of being given the ability to see and understand God as she did, make that commitment by the power of the Spirit, and then being blessed with all these spiritual blessings as a result of that. And you're going to see that in the life of Ruth. We see in this story that through the blood of Christ, in the same way that Ruth is going to be brought into God's people through the blood of Christ, you and I are brought near to God. We're brought in contact with His grace. And God constantly brings us back to that in Scripture. You can't read Scripture for more than 10 minutes without being reminded that God is with you in your struggles, with you in your difficulties, and that He put His th Son through the ultimate struggle and the ultimate difficulty so you and I can have something to latch on to with our faith. And what we see in that is that God's mercy for us always, over, always overcomes our suffering and our sorrow. And the more we train ourselves to walk in faith, to have God's eyes for what's happening in our lives, we learn to see God's provision and we learn to rely on his promises for us. And God redeems um, our broken hearts. He redeems those broken experiences and the difficulties that we go through in the here and now and ultimately in glory. When God completes his redemptive work in you and I, every experience of brokenheartedness, every struggle that we face will be made right. And we'll see it perfectly as he sees it. What we're going to see with Naomi and Ruth and what we see uh, that God promises to do for you and us is that as we walk with God through every life, learning to trust him in his providence, is that God makes us into spiritual people who are battle-hardened but not bitter. That God transforms us into people who learn to live by faith, a very real faith, with a very real, realistic hope in what God's doing in and through us. And that gives us a very real and tangible hope that we can share with others. Naomi experiences that first through Ruth, and she experiences that in being brought back into God's presence with his people as well. And Ruth is going to experience that as well. And God promises, and he shows you and I, that he does the same thing in our lives. And that real hope that we share with others is a beautiful gift. One of the most encouraging things that I've learned about how God's worked through the most difficult, especially the difficult seasons in my life, is he has given me a strength of witness, a sturdiness to my faith, that is a great source of hope that I can share with others in their difficulties, when they're suffering, when they're in pain, and they can't see what God's doing. Let me end with a quote by John Piper because he nails that so well. Uh, 
he makes a statement in speaking about the book of Ruth. He says, the gift of hope that we receive from God's providence isn't meant to overflow into radical acts of love for hurting people. The story is not here merely to help us think right thoughts about God, nor to merely give us hope in his good providence alone. This hope-filled confidence is meant to release a radical, risk-taking love in us that is driven and empowered by our growing faith in God's care for us and all of his children. That's a good word. That's a great reminder of God's hope. And that's something we can trust. Amen? Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your, thank you for your hard providence, Lord. That is uh, such a scary thing to say sometimes. Well, when we read this story, we remember that uh, you promised to walk with us, to guide us, and to strengthen us, uh, especially through the hard things in life. We thank you as we begin this book that the very first thing that you show us is that in the very bleakest of times, in the greatest of losses, that we can trust you and we can walk with you and that we could follow you, and that that will not end in bitterness and heartbreak for us, but that, that it ends in your glory, and your glory is always good for us. We thank you most of all for sending your son, who underwent the most difficult of things, to win us that freedom and that spiritual life and that 